That was great singing of a wonderful, worshipful song. Could we continue worshiping by way of prayer before we approach the word? Dear Father in heaven, we want to thank you that we can adore you. The wise men did that, and they sought you out. We should much do the same. We do want to thank you for the beauty of the word of God, and as we approach a paragraph of scripture that is quite familiar to all of us, might once again you harvest truth out of it for our lives. We want to thank you for the Upper Room Discourse, these many major topics that our Lord surfaced and then left, uh, waiting for 21 epistles to explain them in the decades that were ahead. So we follow a great train and example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who, according to the Hebrew epistle, was our forerunner, our forerunner. And because he is the leader, we can follow after him, because he will lead us as a shepherd into that uh, pasture land which we need. And therefore, once again, we rejoice to know that we belong to the child of the King, uh, Jesus Christ the Lord, and therefore we bless his holy name. Amen. Well, Pete had worked for his boss for about three years and did advance up the ranks of that particular company. He was a leader, but he was a flawed leader. Uh, a couple of things that he always did wrong was he always had to have the last word. And that is so bothersome when you have a friend who always has to have uh, the last word. And secondly, he pontificated to the point where he was always right. He had never been wrong in his life, and he wondered why everybody else didn't understand him the way that he did. But even though he had these great flaws, yet he was kind of a, a likable chap, a likable soul. Well, one day, uh, Pete and his boss and about a dozen co-workers ended up in the conference room around that large boat-shaped desk, and the boss was waxing eloquent when he was interrupted. He was interrupted by Pete, and Pete went on in his braggadocious style, pontificating things left and right. Well, the boss was basically, he had had it. He had had it with Pete and said, enough is enough. Then in a point-blank way, in the midst of all these other fellow employees in a public sense, the boss said, Pete, you're a liar. Pete, you're a braggart. Pete, you are weak-souled. And Pete, you not only put your feet in your own mouth, but it wouldn't surprise me in the future if you would stab me in my back. Well, the boss came down like a ton of bricks, and obviously for the rest of that meeting, Pete said nothing. Not one word, not one syllable. He did not sneeze. He did not yawn. Well, some time elapsed, some time elapsed, and believe it or not, everything the boss said came true. Everything the boss said was literally fulfilled in time and in space. Unbelievable. Who would have thought that would happen? And actually, indeed, it did. So Pete went on this self-imposed exile of deep introspection, and he came to some conclusions as he lamented in his own soul. He said, yes, wow, I did all those awful things just like my boss said I would do. Every single one of them came true in my life. You know what? I, I need someone who will love me unconditionally. What I need is someone to demonstrate grace toward me because I am so weak. He said, would it be that someone would demonstrate pity and mercy to one such as I am? And would anybody be gracious to me? 
And then he went on to say, if, if anyone would share some good news, I would love to hear that because I need an encouraging message to strike my eardrums. Will there be anyone to comfort me? Is there any possibility for me to change? I need a new direction. I need a new orientation. Please, is there somebody out there who can help me? Well, Pete went back to work and surprisingly did not, did not get fired. Uh, He kind of let down his fellow employees big time, but again, he wasn't fired, and at least he had a job. Then, as Pete advanced uh, day by day, he understood that his boss was extremely gracious to him and, and shared the good news that instead of being fired, I'm actually going to promote you. In fact, the boss said to Pete, I would like you to become a spokesperson, and since you know how to write somewhat well, I'd like you to work on some of maybe the, the policies of our company. But I'd like you to be a spokesperson as well as an author of what this company can do in its future. And Pete said to himself, wow, thank God for grace and, and thank God for good news. And of course, what I've just shared with you by way of a story has exactly happened in the New Testament, barely the paragraph that I'm going to share with you this morning. Because Pete, as you know, is Simon Peter, the apostle. And the three years he worked at that company was the three years that he was an apostle and disciple of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Pete, in our story, did go up the ranks. And as you know, Simon Peter was one of the inner three, uh, Peter, James, and John. I mentioned that Pete was a flawed leader, a flawed leader. He oftentimes stuck his feet in his mouth, and Peter did that all the time, as well as even denying the Lord, denying the Lord in one sense, stabbing him in the back. By the way, all this was done publicly, as you read on John chapter 13 and 14, it wasn't done privately, it was done publicly. That conference room, of course, was the upper room, and the table in the conference room was the triclinium, or the table that the apostles were at as they had the, the Last Supper, the Passover Seder together. Peter, as you know, was quite the braggart. He would say things like, I will follow you no matter where you go, and I will die for you. And we see that these are weak promises from a weak and shallow man. Jesus had to say, basically, Peter, you're a liar. (laughs) You're going to deny me three times before this night is over with. So our Lord was quite confrontational to him. It's interesting, then, my story, Simon Peter said nothing. And after this uh, section of the scripture we're going to be at, Peter will not say anything at chapters 14. 15, 16, 17, and it'll be verse 17 of chapter 18 before he says anything, because our Lord sort of put him in his place. But uh, Jesus made some prophecies about Peter that came true, and of course that was analogous to what happened, of course, in our story. But Peter did receive grace in my story. Uh, He was able to become not only a spokesperson, like Peter was in the book of Acts, but also an author because Peter wrote two books of the Bible, First and Second Peter. So the story was, of course, contrived out of the Scripture itself. But as we approach the Word of God today, we want to do it again with a sense of humility 
because what we're doing is looking at the Upper Room Discourse, and we're going to be singing in each of our messages two theological themes that are very, very important that Jesus just brings up, drops the bomb, and then goes on to something else. And it's going to take the, the next 30 years from roughly 30 A.D. to the end of the 60s to, to flesh out in 21 epistles everything the Lord said in the upper room orally. Our first message dealt with humility and holiness. Our second dealt with glory and love. Last week, we talked about communion and the new covenant. And today, today, numbers seven and eight on our list, we're going to be talking about grace and the gospel. Grace and the gospel. And sometimes those words, grace and gospel, are set side by side. None of these things upset me. I don't even count my life as precious to myself in order that I might finish my life with joy and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Gospel and grace, side by side, at Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But today, as we go through the end of John chapter 13 and the first paragraph of John chapter 14, we're going to be looking at some themes, again, grace and glory, through portions of the word that you've basically heard all your life. But today, as I follow the text, I'm going to break it up in these three ways. First, the grace of Christ overcomes overconfidence. The grace of Christ overcomes overconfidence. And, of course, we see that in Simon Peter. Then secondly, secondly, the grace of Christ overcomes underconfidence. The grace of Christ overcomes underconfidence. That is, these apostles whose hearts are troubled and they are very, very afraid because they don't have enough confidence in their God and Savior as they should. And then thirdly and lastly, the grace of Christ overcomes no confidence. That is a lack of confidence. That is unbelief. And that's the gospel message of John chapter 14 at verse number 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. So that's where we're headed today as we have the word of God before us. But we're going to be focusing on grace and glory. Grace and glory as the two traits that our Lord surfaced in the upper room just hours before his death. Well, let's start by looking at John chapter 13. John chapter 13, as it ends, we'll look at verse 33, but verses 36 to 38 is where we'll spend most of our time. So the grace of Christ overcomes overconfidence. And this is the bragging Simon Peter, the bragging Simon Peter. Well, at verse number 33, just to get a context, verse number 33 ends, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus says to the 11 apostles who were there, remember Judas has departed. So to these 11 apostles, Jesus just lays this little bombshell, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then the next two verses are the famous love verses, verses 34 and 35. You're to love one another. You find the word love four times at verses 34 and 35. But what is significant is Peter bypasses love. He disregards love. He sets aside love. He just ignores it. 
But he he's, has in the back of his mind at the end of verse number 33, where I am going, you cannot come. And that did not set well with Simon Peter. Forget about love. Where are you going and why can't I go with you? So verse number 36 has the general question. The general question at verse number 36 as it begins. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Lord, where are you going? At verse 36, it begins with Simon Peter, so you know it's not going to end up well. It's like when my mom said Gregory Jack Hands wasn't going to be something nice. The boom would be lowered. And when Simon Peter is recorded, that is Simon in addition to the word Peter, we know it's going to end poorly. So the question is, where are you going? There's bewilderment and there's exasperation. And Peter says, I I basically deserve an answer. I'm the leader of the apostolic band, and I ask you a question, Jesus, and I want an answer. Lord, where are you going? Forget about the significance of love at verses 34 and 35, which is the immediate context. I'm going back to the end of verse number 33, and I want to know where you're going. I am not satisfied with what you've told us. I need more detail. So at verse number 36, right in the middle, Jesus gave the answer. Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And what our Lord was saying is, where I go, which is the cross to to death, you cannot follow me now. You apostles will not die as martyrs right now. That'll come a little bit later on when you follow me, even to the point of death. And you'll remember parenthetically that Simon Peter was still bothered about where Jesus was going, when he was coming back, his will for another apostle's life. And at John chapter 21, at verse number 19, Jesus once again looked at Peter and said, Peter, when you were a youngster, you put on your own clothes and walked wherever you want. But when you become old, someone's going to bind you and take you where you don't want to go. And then the Bible says, this signified Jesus to Peter by what death he would glorify God. Because you can die for the glory of God. You are to live for the glory of God. And Isaiah says you were even born for the glory of God. But the point is simply this. Jesus says, where I go, that is to the cross, you cannot follow me now. You're not going to be crucified alongside of me. But you will follow later, and you will follow to the point of death. Because every apostle, except John, died as a martyr. Did you know that? The original 12 apostles, really 11, they all died as martyrs except John, But John was put on the Isle of Patmos. Why was he put there? Number one, to starve to death. Or number two, to to be eaten by wild animals. So in one sense, he was a martyr. But God says, well, since you're there, you might as well write a book of the Bible. And we call that the book of the Revelation, the book of St. John, the divine, the apocalypse, the apocalypse of St. John. So at verse number 37... Peter asks a more specific question, verse 37, question number two. Peter said to him, or Peter questioned Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'm the boss. I want an answer. Lord, I didn't like what you said 
at the end of verse number 36. So I get a follow-up question. I want to know what's going on. And there's a pause here because Luke tells us what Jesus said. It was something like this. Simon, Simon, Satan has prayed to me for you. Did you know that Satan prays to God? And he prays for you. And then Jesus says, but don't worry, I have prayed for you. And when you are strengthened, that is after your failure of denying me three times, then you'll be able to strengthen your brethren out of Luke chapter 22 at verse number 31 and 32. But Peter, again, he's just so full of himself. He didn't humble himself to wash anybody's feet in the upper room. Why can I not follow you right now? And then he pontificates even more. Note the next clause. Furthermore, I will lay down my life for you. What a lie. What boasting. Peter's intentions and his self-assessment vastly were outstripped by his weakness and his impotence. He had pride and overconfidence, and it resulted him resulted in him being a coward and being put in despair. But again, as we look at this, I will lay down my life for you. It's interesting that the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark at chapter 14 at verse 31 says, and the other 10 apostles said the same. Isn't that interesting? At Mark 14, 31, the other 10 apostles said, not only will Peter lay down his life for you, Jesus, but we will too. A whole room full of liars. Really, the flesh became predominant and preeminent, and they were not walking by the Spirit at all. So at verse number 36, Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to answer you very, very bluntly. Verse 38, Jesus answered Simon Peter and said, Will you lay down your life for me? And that's what we call an interrobang. An interrobang is a question exclamation point, question, exclamation point. That's what we have here. Will you lay down your life for me? That's a question, but it's really, will you lay down your life for me? And how ironic, the answer is, Peter, you won't, but I'll lay down my life for you, according to John chapter 10, verse 11, verse 15, verses 17 and 18. Will you lay down your life for me, Jesus asked Simon Peter? The answer is no. And he adds, truly, truly, I say to you, again, truly, truly, or verily, verily, only in John's writings. And this means it's not a casual statement, but it's extremely serious, extremely important. Truly, truly, I say to you, Simon Peter, here's what he says. A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Yikes. The cock crow. Now, a cock crow can be one of two things in the Bible. Number one, a literal animal. Remember, like there's, there's hens and chickens, and there's roosters and cocks. It could be a literal fowl. Or did you know that cock crow is a time of night? And that's what we have in the Gospel of Mark at chapter 13 at verse 35. Because the Jewish people divided the 12 hours of evening into four three-hour segments. Just let me read for you Mark chapter 13, verse 35. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, 
whether at evening, 6 to 9 p.m., or at midnight, uh, which would be 9 p.m. to midnight, or cock crowing, or rooster crows, that would be midnight to 3 a.m., or in the morning, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So our Lord could say one of two things. Peter, the cock will crow, a literal foul bird will, will call out, and that will be a reminder that you have denied me. Or he could have said, by 3 a.m., you'll deny me. Both are true. Probably a literal foul is probably the, the way we should go. But it's, it's kind of interesting how the Lord used that expression. Truly, truly, I say to you, serious as a heart attack, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. What a punch in the gut. Took all the wind out of Simon Peter's sail. And Peter was a fisherman, so he knew what wind and sails were like. And our Lord just punched him in the gut. And Peter went from hero to zero at the end of John chapter 13. So the grace of Christ overcomes overconfidence as personified in Simon Peter the Apostle. Now, secondly, secondly, just one little verse. Secondly, the grace of Christ overcomes underconfidence. The grace of Christ overcomes underconfidence seen in these other ten in the upper room who were full of anxiety. They were troubled. They were anxious. And as we look at just one verse, John chapter 14, verse number 1, we'll look at things that are negative that begin the verse and things that are positive that end the verse. But here's the negative. Do not let your heart be troubled, or in the language of the New Testament, stop letting your heart be troubled. Your heart is already troubled. Let's stop it. Let's stop that. And the people's hearts were troubled. Number one, Peter's heart was extremely troubled because he went from, I will lay down my life for you, to, you're going to deny me three times. And when did the Lord ever lie to Peter? So the troubled heart, at a bare minimum, at verse number 1 of chapter 14, would be Simon Peter. But the other ten, their hearts were just as troubled because they said, we'll, we'll lay down our lives too, just like Peter said. We're on his side. We agree. And the idea is if our leader, Peter, is going to deny the Lord, what hope do I have? I'm just a regular apostle. I'm not in the inner three. I'm not Judas, but I'm not one of the big three, Peter, James, and John. And if our leader fails, then what hope do I have? And, and when Jesus talked about the traitor and the betrayer, wouldn't that be Peter? Couldn't that be Peter? So, ay, ay, ay. Everybody's heart was troubled for a host of reasons. And Jesus said to them, stop letting your heart be troubled. Your heart is agitated. When you go to Home Depot's, or you go to Lowe's, and you, you buy a gallon of paint, they put it in an agitator, and it shakes it all up whether it's one gallon or five gallons. And that's how the hearts are at chapter 14, verse 1. 
of these 11 apostles, stop letting your heart be troubled. What you need to do is something very, very positive. And what you need to do, Jesus says, at the end of verse number one, is very, very positive. Do not let your heart be troubled, but do let your heart believe in God and believe also in me. So stop letting your heart be troubled and start letting your heart believe. Believe in God and believe in me. Now, what he said is, is again, remarkable. People have been believing in God since the book of Genesis, say 2,000 years, just a ballpark it. But how many years have people been believing in Jesus? At the most, a few. At the most, a few. But this is one of those, one of those um, left-handed proofs of the deity of Christ. That he says, I want you to believe in Almighty God and believe in me. Now, what kind of person can say that? What kind of person can say that? Sometimes you'll read a tract, is he Lord, lunatic, or liar? Is he a Lord, a lunatic, or a liar? He is no liar. He is the Lord. And he says, believe in God as you've done your entire life. But now, since I'm deity and fleshed, I want you to believe and trust and yield and submit and surrender to me as well, because that will comfort your troubled heart. In fact, when you are really, really at wit's end, don't you want both the Father and the Son to minister to your soul? Don't you want both the Father and the Son to minister to your heart? Of course you do. It reminds me of the end of John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and no man shall pluck them out of my hand My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Beloved, I am in the hand of Christ, and I am in the hand of God. They work side by side. In judgment, they do that. In comfort, they do that. What a powerful, powerful God we have. So Jesus was basically saying, in trying times like these, now more than ever, You must believe in God and believe in me. In times of trouble, you need to reinforce and fortify your faith with both God the Father and God the Son. Again, it's the deity of Christ. How wonderful and beautiful that is. How stupid to say, believe in God, believe also in John the Baptist. Believe in God and believe also in Isaiah the prophet. But when it says, believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus Christ, you go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I want to do that. I want to be doubly secure in the hand of both Jesus and God, according to John chapter 10. And I want my heart to stop fearing being anxious because God the Father and God the Son will minister to my soul. So we've looked at the grace of Christ that overcomes overconfidence seen in the life of Peter. And secondly, the grace of Christ overcomes underconfidence, those who are troubled and anxious. And now thirdly and lastly, thirdly and lastly, the grace of Christ overcomes those that have no confidence, lack of confidence, verily unbelief, that is, unbelievers. 
because there's a mission not only of grace, grace to help the troubled heart, but there's the gospel, the good news, to get someone into heaven who is an unbeliever, has no faith, has no confidence, has no assurance. So as we look at verse 2 down to verse number 6, we'll be looking at a quartet of things. First, a place, and that place, of course, is heaven. And verses 2 and 3 are these verses you may have memorized. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you might be also. My friend, that is powerful. That is powerful. And our Lord just shared that in the upper room after an a, a awkward discourse on denying him, an awkward discourse on a troubled heart and anxiety. And now our Lord really wants to minister to these people. And he says, there's a special place just for you. In fact, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The next verse, I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus has in mind somewhere where we're all going when we die. It's a place. Heaven is not nirvana. Heaven is not utopia. Heaven is a literal place where God dwells. It is unbelievably glorious. And verse number two says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, that is, many, many mansions. This, my friend, is heaven. This is heaven. In Hebrews 11, heaven is likened to a country. At Hebrews 12, heaven is likened to a city. At 2 Timothy 4, heaven is likened to a kingdom. In Luke 23, 2 Corinthians 12, in the book of the Revelation, heaven is likened to paradise. And here it's likened to home. Absent from the body is to be at home with Christ at 2 Corinthians 5.8. So there is a house, there is a mansion out of the King James, and our Lord is going to prepare a place for you. Now, he's a carpenter. Remember Mark chapter 6, verse 3? Isn't that Jesus, the carpenter, whose mom we know? And a, a carpenter, you know, builds things, sometimes yoke for a team of oxen, but a carpenter can build a house or a place or a mansion. If you had 150000 and had a lot here in Woodhaven, it'd probably take about five to six months to get your 1,800-foot ranch. But if you had three hundred grand in Brownstown, you could have a four- or five-bedroom colonial. That would probably take oh, eight to ten months. But what if you had an unlimited budget, and let's say you had an unlimited amount of time? Ay, ay, ay. Can you imagine what kind of mansion that would be? And our Lord's had a couple thousand years. And he's unbelievably wealthy. So I can't wait to see my dwelling place. I can't wait to see my mansion. I know he's an excellent carpenter. He's had all the time and money to furnish it, and I can't wait to get there. It's a place. Uh, that's great preaching and makes good hymnody. But the idea here is actually out of a Bedouin tent where the father 
would have his children, and they would simply add black goat hair additions to the Bedouin's tent. The idea here of dwelling places has the idea of there is ample room for you, ample room for your loved one, ample room for your relatives, ample room for your, your friends. So it is a glorious place, but there's room in heaven for you. But you have to make a reservation. You have to make a reservation. Prepare to meet God. Amos chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that. So there is a wonderful, glorious place. And then at verse number 3, he says, I'm going to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you might be also. I am coming back. I am coming back. The liberal theologian says he comes back in in a post-resurrection appearance. Isn't that wonderful? No. Here our Lord lays down the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you might be also. And then he leaves that and he says, Paul and the other epistle writers, you you develop the pre-trib rapture of the church. And again, a perfect illustration how in the upper room, things are seminal, they're seed-like. And then you have to wait for the expansion of that in the 21 epistles. To take the uproom discourse and expand it, you get all the epistles. Take all the epistles and condense them, you get the uproom discourse. That's just the way it is. And it's wonderfully, wonderfully beautiful. Jesus is saying, my return is as certain as my departure. There is no way I am not going to the cross. And there is no way I'm not coming back for you. That is a blessed hope. And I have it. I am so pre-trib, I will not eat post-toasties. There is a blessed hope that we all have. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. I didn't say it was soon. I said it was next. And that keeps the hope alive. Now, as you know, sometimes there's things in culture that are, are so theologically analogous that, that Paul just has to run with it. And whether it's the doctrine of slavery, the doctrine of adoption, it happens all over the Bible. And here's a classic illustration. <clears throat> because this idea of receiving you unto myself, that where I am there, you might be also, that is marriage terminology. It is marriage terminology. And in a traditional Jewish family, the betrothal was about three stages long. The first one was a covenant made between the fathers that my daughter and my son will eventually get married. But, but the, the big shots did that without the knowledge of the daughter or the son. So there was a, a covenant agreement in the past to get these two people to be married. Then when they became of age... There had to be a mandatory nine-month, we would call engagement, nine-month engagement to prove that the woman was not immoral and would have a baby in that nine months. So they built that in. It's called the waiting period or the betrothal period, and we have that in the New Testament as well. And then thirdly and lastly was the union where there was a legal marriage 
There was the sexual union as husband and wife and the bearing of legitimate children that are to be fostered with a mom and a dad. So those three stages in culture. But Paul and John go, ooh, ooh, this, this is too good. The parents get together without the knowledge of their sons and daughters. That's the eternal covenant of Hebrews chapter 13. That's First Peter chapter 1 when Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1 when we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In other words, the Trinity got together in eternity past and says, I'm going to save Greg Hands. I'm going to save Ron. I'm going to save Greg. That's just how it is. Your salvation starts with an eternal covenant in eternity past made by your parents, <laughs> your father and your savior. Then Paul says, you know, as we live our life with Jesus coming back, we better be pure we better be holy. I have betrothed you as a chaste virgin to Christ. At 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. And that's the espousal period. Not nine months, but it might be 50 years. Am I going to be faithful to my God over this long period of time? Because I want to be faithful. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be just. I want to be righteous. I want to be pious. I want to be mature. I want to be fruit-bearing. I want to be God-glorifying. It takes more than nine months to do that. You have a baby in nine months, but you'll not get spiritual maturity that way. So God says, yes, I've espoused you as a bride to Christ the groom, and I want you to be holy and chaste. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 3. And then the last part of marriage is when they come together and they live under the same roof with each other. Where I am, there you might be also. Joyce and I dated on and off for seven years, seven years. And in the midst of that seven years, where I am, she wasn't. And then in the month of December, we got married. And then where I am, there she might be also. She's there all the time. (laughs) And that's a good thing. Wow. How powerful is the Lord? Then having looked at the place, um, now let's look at the problem. Verse 4. Jesus said, verse 4, you know the way that is, where I'm going. And then Thomas at verse number 5 expresses frustration. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going How do we know the way? Jesus, you're asking the impossible. You're talking about where and how, and we have not a clue. We have not a clue about what you've just told us about coming again, receiving us, where you're going. We're supposed to know. Doubting Thomas here says, we don't know. We are confused in heart. We're troubled in mind. And, Lord, can you just be a bit more clear? So our Lord, after this problem, says, here's a great path. Here's a great path. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father or comes to the Father except through me. Wow, isn't that great? Isn't that great? The path that we take is through the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Verse number six, Jesus said to him, 
I am the way. It's the, the literal Greek word for road. We would call that in Greek, West Hados. Hados is the word for road. O-D-O-S. Like in the book of Exodus, E-X means out. O-D-O-S means road. The book of Exodus literally means the road out. And Jesus said, I am the road. I am the road. I'm not the via maris, that is the way along the Mediterranean Sea. I am the road, the road that leads to heaven. Our English word way, it'll work, but it should be a bit stronger. I am the one road that goes to heaven. You get on my road, you get to heaven. You get off my road, you go to hell. That blank or that clear is very, very precise. Then secondly, Jesus said, I am the truth. And Jesus basically saying, the, the Roman emperor, the Caesar, says that he is God. If you go to Mount Olympus in Greece, there's God's galore. It's baloney. It's hogwash. I am the truth. I am the truth. And because I am the truth, everybody else is wrong. That is extremely important. To say that Jesus is the truth means to say Islam is wrong. Hinduism is wrong. Scientology is wrong. Shintoism is wrong. Because the truth excludes all others. And then he says that he is the life. He is the life. He has life in a different quality and essence. A head of cabbage is alive. A flower is alive. A cow is alive. But that's bios, from which we got the word biology. That, that's life in existence. But God offers to us zoe, which is life with a capital L, life that partakes of deity. We have a divine nature in us, as Second Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 states. And that makes all the difference in the world. He who believes in me has eternal life right now, not when we die, but right now, because our life partakes of Zoe, which is deity. Our life does not partake of Bias, which is everyday existence. A cow eats, sleeps, and reproduces. Human beings hopefully do more than eat, sleep, and reproduce. But if they do not have Christ, all they have is Bias. If you do have Christ, all you have is Zoe. Life with a capital L, life infused with the very nature of God. In fact, a cow is better off than an unsafe person because a cow doesn't have to pay taxes. So after the place and the problem and the path, there's the prohibition. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very, very powerful. Two quick applications before time fails us. The first application deals with grace, deals with grace. And when you blow it badly, and when you sin grievously, as in, Jesus, I want an answer right now, and I'm going to die with you. And when Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, yikes, that's a bad day. So Peter was so pompous, and Jesus took the needle and just pricked his First is bubble. So when you blow it badly, 
And when you sin grievously, just like Simon Peter, then I want you to know that the grace of God, God's unmerited favor in your behalf, is poured out to you. I can develop this, but I won't. But when Peter wrote First Peter, he used the word grace in every single chapter, every single chapter, because Peter realized, for me to be a liar, for me to be a braggart, to me to deny the Lord, I need grace. I need grace. And he said, I'm never going to forget that. I'm not going to let the believing community forget it either. So when I write First Peter, every single chapter will have grace. And I'm going to give God one of the most majestic titles he has. May the God of all grace, the God of all grace at First Peter 5.10. What a majestic title that is. And then secondly, secondly, in reference to the gospel, in reference to the gospel, which is, of course, evangelism, Jesus said that he is the way, he is the road, he's the divine chauffeur who will put you on the gospel bus, as J. Werner McGee might say, and take you literally to heaven. He's not even, he's the road, he's the chauffeur, he's the way. What a wonderful, wonderful truth to have in your life. They say all roads lead to Rome, but the problem is when you die, you don't go to Rome. You want to die and go to heaven. You want to be on that road. And Jesus said, I am the road. I am the truth. Jesus says we live in a world of pluralism, not only world religions like Islam and Hindu, but we have fixed laws in math like two plus two equals four. And that's just how it is. You can have a vote and have a majority vote that you want two plus two to be five but it's not going to work in time and space. Or you might have a combination lock that has, you know, three numbers like you maybe have in high school if your memory goes back that, that far. And, and you say, I don't, I don't care what numbers were, were preset at the factory. My favorite numbers are prime numbers, so I'm going to use those. Well, it's not going to open. And there are spiritual laws. There are spiritual laws, and this is one of them. No one goes to the Father except through Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. What a glorious gospel indeed that we do have. I love the tabernacle. It has 420 feet that shout no. Remember, 150 feet on the north, 150 feet on the south, 75 on the west. But on the east side, on the east side, um, there's 45 feet of canvas, and then there's one open door. So like, you know, like in the tabernacle, it's 450 feet in, in perimeter, and 420 feet say, no, there is no door. But when there is a door on the east side, it's 30 feet wide. 30 feet wide. Isn't that an invitation? You can't come in the north, the south, or the west but you can come in the east. And that east is 30 feet wide. Well, that's enough for all your relatives and probably all your friends too. It's exclusive, but the invitation is open to all. In John chapter 10, the sheepfold. Jesus is the door of the sheepfold, only one way in and one way out. 
if you hop over the fence, the stone fence, you are in the King James, a thief and a robber. Thieves and robbers don't go to heaven. They go to hell. But if you go in and out through the door, all access is yours. It's exclusive, but the invitation is open to all. Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? And all God's children said, amen. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for grace. And thank you for the gospel. Themes our Lord surfaced in the upper room, and now we get to experience the fullness of them because we have a completed Bible and we live our life under your watchful care. And that's why we bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen.